Certainly appreciate Brother Brian leading us in these fine songs, many of which have emphasized the, the love of Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, and love lifted me. And certainly it is the case that love has lifted us. If we understand and appreciate where we are, if we're children of God, if we're Christians, then it is love that has lifted us and placed us in a position of peace and joy that is unparalleled by anything this world can offer to try to provide that kind of peace and joy. There is nothing that compares to living the Christian life. And as a part of that, we have the privilege of prayer and the opportunity to be uh, included in the prayers of brothers and sisters, as Wayman asked uh, Tom to do today, and I appreciate that, appreciate Tom's good prayer, and appreciate Wayman, and certainly we want to remember him and his struggles with his dad's illness now, and uh, anything in his life that uh, is presenting challenges, we certainly appreciate his desire to be remembered in our prayers, and we love him, appreciate him. And what an exciting day it is to have Lewis back with us today. Uh, we are so uh, thrilled to see him, and and others who've been out, as uh, Steve pointed out, and we appreciate uh, so much God's blessings upon these people and pray that God will continue to bless uh, others. Good to see several young people uh, uh, with us uh, today. The Logans are visiting with us, and uh, um, I knew I knew them, but I'm getting old, you know, and I thought, I told Kim, I said, you've been here before. No, he said, I hadn't, but Highland and Dalton, that's where we are. I said, oh, yeah, <laughs> I've been there a few times, <laughs> so... Uh, I am getting a little old. My memory doesn't serve me as well, as, uh, especially after a passage of time. But we're delighted to have the Logan family and our, some of our college students are here today. Appreciate uh, them, some of our UT students. See several of them here today and, and uh, glad that uh, you are here. We uh, appreciate these young people and visitors who are with us. Uh, that uh, is an encouragement to us. If I told you that I was going to present a lesson today, uh, on the serpent and the Savior, uh, what text would probably come to your mind if I said the sermon today is on the serpent and the Savior? Chances are you might think back to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, you might think back to that time when Satan in the form of the serpent entered the Garden of Eden and persuaded Eve to partake of that which God had forbidden and to persuade her husband to do the same. And that prompted then the unfolding of the scheme of redemption, uh, the first intimation of the ultimate sacrifice that would be made is given there in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, it shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That would likely be the connection that you would make between the serpent and the Savior, if I give you that title. And we, yet we are going to talk about the serpent and the Savior, but it has nothing to do with Genesis 3.15. In fact, we're going to talk about a subject where we analogize the serpent that we are speaking about today with the Savior and look primarily, at least initially, at the similarities between this serpent and the Savior of the world. How can there be a likeness between a serpent of any kind and the Savior of mankind? Well, let Jesus tell us how there can be that likeness. In John 3, 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. 
Jesus himself called attention to the similarity between his crucifixion on Calvary and the lifting up of a bronze serpent back in Numbers chapter 21 within the context of verses 4 through 9. And there are some tremendously powerful lessons that we may glean from a brief examination of that analogy that Jesus himself drew. One overriding lesson we need to appreciate is the lesson that we see from type and antitype in Scripture. That is, in Old Testament writings, we see certain things that are introduced to us as types of that which comes much later, which is the fulfillment or the antitype of that type. Moses is a type of Christ, for example. Moses was a mediator, and in this example that we're looking at this morning, we'll see his mediatorial role in this very incident in Numbers 21. Moses was a mediator between God and the people, and as such, he typified the ultimate mediator, the one mediator between God and men, 1 Timothy 2.5, who is Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful study in the type and the antitype from Old Testament to New. But let me ask you this, how could someone put together a book that is filled with types and antitypes that harmonize beautifully, that come together in perfect harmony and unity, unless that someone or ones wrote the book by the direction and the inspiration of God? You couldn't do it. And so therefore, the study of type and antitype is a reinforcement of the inspiration of Scripture because it speaks to the unity and the harmony, the beautiful unity and harmony of the Word of God. Everything comes together in beautiful, harmonious fashion. Men unaided by the Holy Spirit of God could never have produced such a book. And yet that is just one of many of the proofs of inspiration. But that is a lesson in itself. The very study of types and antitypes is a study that reinforces or should reinforce our faith in the inspiration of Scripture. Now turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, we see something that tragically we saw much of in the history of God's people after they were freed from Egyptian bondage, and that is their murmuring and their complaining. And something of a background that is important to this particular incident where they grow discouraged or impatient because of the way, as verse 4 says, is to go back one chapter earlier and see that when the children of Israel came into the country, near the country of Edom, on the way to the promised land of Canaan, they wanted to go through Edom. Remember now, uh, Edom, there's some history there with Jacob and Esau. Esau was the ancestor of the uh, Edomites, and you remember the conflict between Jacob and Esau. They finally worked all that out, and uh, they were harmonious once again. But Jacob stole the blessing and the birthright of Esau, and Esau was initially quite upset about that. But later they had a very uh, happy reunion uh, much later. But the Edomites still had some, obviously, some obvious hostility against the Israelites. And when the Israelites requested to come through Edom, Edom said, verse 20 of Numbers 20, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. 
So now, when we come to Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4, on their journey, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. There's a lesson initially we need to see there. Things don't always work out for us in our journey through life the way that we think we should, or the, the way that we think they should. We don't always... Um, uh, uh, we're not always able to follow the very path that we plan for ourselves. And sometimes there are detour, detours that come in our lives. Sometimes there are adversities, obviously, that, that spring up in our lives. How do we handle those? How do we handle a, a change to our plans, a disruption to our plans? The people of Israel didn't handle it well uh, at all. It seems that perhaps the refusal of Edom to let them come through had become somewhat of a discouragement to the people because they went around the land of Edom, and then the next statement we find is, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, or very grieved on the way. They were impatient. And what did that lead to? Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. They were in an area now, because they had to go around the land of Edom, that historically we know was not a great area and there probably wasn't a lot of food and water but they did have the manna from above they did have that which God was providing to them on a daily basis but how did they feel about that the very next statement after for there is no food and no water listen to this and our soul loathes this worthless bread can you imagine our soul loathes this worthless bread. Who was the source of that worthless bread? The God of heaven. And they dare call it worthless bread. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. Are we surprised then to read verse 6 after that statement? So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Fiery serpents, most likely referred to as fiery, not because of their appearance, though there are those who say that the snakes in that area that were likely involved in this would have had a copper type of appearance, perhaps in the sunlight, a little bit of a glow, but that more likely the fiery has reference to the bite itself and the fiery nature of that bite the sting and the pain involved in that bite, and the result of it was death because these were venomous snakes that God sent among the people and many of the people of Israel died. Now stop right there and ask if God was unjust to bring this kind of punishment upon the people. What kind of history do they have with God? They had crossed the Red Sea, remember? They had been able to stand and witness the power of God in parting the waters of the Red Sea. Every single one of them had gone through safely on dry ground. They had been able to turn around on the other shore and look back at their enemies, the Egyptians, and see them destroyed before their very eyes, drowned in the sea. And the Lord had said, look at them now because you won't see them anymore. They're gone forever. Your enemy has been taken care of. And they sang the song of Moses and the Lamb on the other side of that Red Sea, and they rejoiced and they gave praise to God, and it wasn't very long until the first adversity as they viewed it arose, and they were murmuring and complaining just like they're complaining again right here. God is good. God is merciful. 
God had shown his mercy to them and his goodness toward them time and time again. But God is also just. And God does punish sin. And so the fiery serpents bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, in other words, because they saw the death of many of their brothers and sisters, Israelites, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And there we have the remedy set forth by God through Moses, the mediator between himself and the people, for curing this bite that led to the death of so many. And there are lessons to be learned, one of which Jesus has already called our attention to in John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so will the Son of Man be lifted up. Doesn't that immediately suggest to us that there are some analogies that we can draw between the lifting up of Christ on Calvary and the lifting up of this bronze serpent, a type of the lifting up of Christ that came later? And again in John 12, 32, Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Do you think those who'd been bitten by these snakes who were still alive were drawn to this bronze serpent in any way based upon the instruction they heard? I dare say they were. They wanted relief. The drawing power of Calvary is typified by this bronze serpent. And as we think of the bronze serpent, the first word that should come to our minds is sin. Sin. Because as we think of the cross, the first word that should come to our mind really is sin. Because it was sin that caused the sinless Son of God to have to hang there, to suffer, and to die there. And there is an analogy between that serpent to whom the people, to which the people were to look, and the Savior of the world. Because that serpent became an offering, if you will, for the people, and when they looked at it, they were relieved of their problem. Jesus on Calvary became an offering, the offering, the sin offering for people. Was there any sin in that bronze serpent? Was there anything sinful about the serpent that Moses constructed? No, there was no sin in the bronze serpent. But it became the very object through which God chose to relieve the people of their dilemma. Was there any sin in the Savior as he hung upon Calvary? Absolutely not. He was sinless. But he became sin for us. That is, he became the sin offering. He took upon himself the burden of the sins of mankind from the very first moment that man sinned and the sins of anyone as long as time stands. Oh no, that doesn't mean that anyone for as long as time stands will be forgiven by the very fact that Jesus hung there on Calvary. 
But had he not hung there on Calvary, there'd be no opportunity for anyone in the future for as long as time stands to have forgiveness of sins. It would be an impossibility. Think of the enormity of that burden. Think of the absolute enormity of that burden upon the sinless shoulders of the Son of God. I will draw all peoples to myself. Love lifted the Lord to the cross. And love lifts us today as we respond to the love that lifted him. And he designed it that way. It should be that love. Jesus became our sin offering. But there's something else that we need to appreciate. As we see the similarity between the serpent, the bronze serpent, and the Savior of the world. And that is that there is but one way to salvation. And oh, how important that is for us to appreciate in the world in which we live today. And we've talked about it on more than one occasion. How many ways are there to God? So many people in today's world say there are many ways to God. I've told you twice or so at least about the bumper sticker I've seen on two occasions. God is just too big for one religion. God is too big for one religion. That's what the sticker says. What does the Bible say? I've got to be more interested in the Bible than a bumper sticker. And the Bible says there's one way to salvation. And the bronze serpent, way back here in Numbers, tells us that same thing as it typifies the salvation through the Savior. How many serpents could they have looked at and lived? How many serpents were erected by Moses? One. Only one. It was not look at the serpent of your choice. That was not the option that they had. Oh, we ask many today, say, just pick the church of your choice or pick the religion of your choice or pick the religious leader of your choice. But they couldn't pick the serpent of their choice and look at it and live. There was but one serpent. Thus, there was but one way to salvation. And what was it that prompted them to look at it, those who did? It was the death of many that brought them to seek salvation. Go back and look at the verses again. The Lord sent fiery serpents, verse 6, among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, therefore, after many had died, it was then that the attention of the people was gained. And it was then that they said, we have sinned. It was the death of many that brought them to seek salvation and to realize we have sinned. Spiritual death through sin is what causes man to seek a savior today. And the problem we face in the world in which we live is that there are far too many who don't see the seriousness of sin. They don't understand that they have experienced spiritual death in the condition that they're in and that they're not seeking that Savior. But there has to be at some point a realization that I have been separated from God by what? By sin. Because that's what sin does. It separates. Sin separates. And separation means death. That's what death is. That's what the word means. It means separation. And sin separates me spiritually from God but a realization of the love of God should cause me to seek that Savior whose love prompted him to go to Calvary. 
And so the death of many brought them to seek salvation. And spiritual death through sin should cause man today to seek a Savior. That's why we have to keep emphasizing the seriousness of sin. That's why we have to convince people that sin is very real and that sin separates us from God for all eternity unless we avail ourselves of the means to be forgiven of that sin. And that brings us back to the bronze serpent. What did they have to do? Was it sufficient that Moses, at the instruction of the Lord, made the serpent, verse 9, and put it on a pole? And so it was, when it was made and when it was on the pole, if a serpent had bitten anyone, he was healed. Doesn't read that way, does it? So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, listen to it, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. When he looked, he lived. How important it is for us to understand that that salvation that typifies the salvation made available through the cross was not salvation by faith alone, was it? When he looked, he lived. He had to do something. Any Israelite who had been bitten had to do something. He had to respond to the word of God that came through Moses and he had to respond in exactly the way that God through Moses had told him to respond. He could not sit in his tent having been bitten by a fiery serpent and believe that his faith was strong enough to save him whether he looked at that serpent out there or not. I've mentioned before that I've heard Brother James Watkins illustrate it this way. You've got a man who's here in his tent. He's been bitten by a serpent. He's about to die and some brother Israelite comes running to the door of his tent, comes in and says, I've got great news. God has told Moses to build a bronze serpent and he's told us that if we'll look at it, we'll live. And the man in the tent who's dying of snake bite says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I've got too much faith to go out there and look at that serpent. My faith will save me. I believe my faith will save me. What would have happened to him? He would have died a snake bite. No question about it. He had to get out of the tent and go look at the serpent. And when he did, he lived. Is that too complicated for man to understand and appreciate today about the terms that are set forth by the cross? They had to look in order to live. We've got to look to Calvary in order to live. Can you see the cross today upon which the Son of God shed His precious blood? No. Now, you can go to Palestine, you can go to Israel, and at least in years past, there were those I've heard who were trying to sell pieces of the cross. Probably so many pieces of the cross that you could build a large building with all that wood, probably. You can't see the cross of Christ, literally, but you've got to look at it in the only way that Scripture says you can and that is by the same kind of obedient faith that had to be manifested by those Israelites who had been snake bit. They had to look at it. We've got to meet the terms of the cross. And what are those terms? The Lord who died there made them clear. Believe that I am He or die in your sins. John eight twenty four. Believe alone? No, the same Lord, as we have so often quoted, 
also said, as recorded in Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What has the Lord said thus far? Believe that I am He or die in your sins. Repent of your sins or you will perish eternally. What is repentance? A change of mind. Did these people have any kind of change of mind? They said, we have sinned. Please pray for us. That's a change of mind and they wanted help. That involves repentance today and it is absolutely essential. I must sweeten my lips, the Lord said, with the confession that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32. And yes, that same Lord who said believe, repent, and confess made it abundantly clear. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. The religious world works overtime to discount what deity said about baptism. Claiming that it's an outward manifestation of an inward grace. It's a symbol of the salvation you've already achieved. It's this, it's that. It's whatever except for remission of sins. When the Bible makes it abundantly clear that it is. How could someone bitten by one of these snakes say, Well, when I'm healed, I'm going to go look at it. When I'm healed of this snake bite, I'm going to go look at that bronze serpent because that will symbolize the salvation from snake bite that I have received. Dead in his tent. He would have been dead in his tent. We know that. We know that. Why then do we argue with God? With the very Son of God who said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, someone says, well, that's a pretty unlikely means of my being saved. I don't understand it. Well, let me ask you this. Did those Israelites have to understand why God told Moses to build a bronze serpent and have them look at it? Do you think there was any temptation on the part of anyone who'd been snake-bitten to say, this is strange. This seems strange. Why didn't God just heal us after we asked Moses to pray? For us? Why didn't he just heal us all? He could have. Why didn't he? It doesn't have to be in keeping with my human reason what God does for me to do it. Mine is to do it. That's my responsibility. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says, in verse 18, he writes, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. And what is the message of that cross? Believe, repent, confess, and yes, be baptized for the remission of sins. Buried in water. Where the water cleanses you? No. Not any more than that bronze serpent cleansed anybody from snake bite or cured snake bite. That bronze serpent didn't cure snake bite at all, did it? God did it. God did it, but He said, I'll only do it when you look at that which I've instructed Moses to construct. And today God says, I'll only forgive your sins when you do that which I have instructed you to do. And that culminates in being buried in baptism, buried in water so that the blood can be applied as God has determined to apply it. That's all He said. And all He asked us to do is to have enough faith to believe Him and to respond and to go down into that watery grave in faith in the operation of God to do what He said He would do.
and he'll do it just as like he did it back here if we'll do our part sincerely from the heart believing repenting confessing and being baptized and then he'll add us to his kingdom the church the church we read about in the new testament but oh so much we can learn from old testament examples as is the case today with the serpent and the savior a whole lot of similarities we might close with a couple of differences however the serpent saved from physical death, didn't he? God through the serpent. Christ saves from spiritual death. That's a greater deliverance, isn't it? And Christ gives eternal life to those whom he has delivered who remain faithful even unto death. And the serpent's power was also temporary, wasn't it? It was not to be worshipped. But you know the people did that very thing? And you can read in 2 Kings 18, verse 4, that Hezekiah, when he came to the throne, a righteous king of Judah, he finally destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses had constructed and that the people had hung on to and were worshiping. And he destroyed it because God never intended for that serpent to be worshiped. But with Christ, his power never changes. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8, and he is to be worshipped continually. That is another difference. The serpent and the Savior. Will we learn what we should learn from the beautiful analogy that Jesus drew when he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. Has he drawn you? If not... It's our fervent prayer that today will be the day you are drawn to Calvary by the love that was manifested there and responding with reciprocal love that you will, by faith, repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of those sins. Or if as a wayward child you need to come home, we pray that this will be the day you'll do that as we pray with you and for you to a God who loves you and a God who will forgive as we stand to sing. Will you come?